You are listening to the Zookeeper Stories Podcast with your host, Matthew Price. The goals of this show are to share the stories of animal care professionals around the world, give advice on how to get to the field, and share information that will help out new zookeepers. One of the most common questions people in our field are asked is, how did you get your job? I hope to shed some light on that question and many more by investigating the origin stories of the people on the front lines of the animal care world, the zookeepers. Welcome back to another episode of the Zookeeper Stories podcast. We are back with part two of Monica Zabinskis. Uh, and last time when we left off, we were talking about Tasmanian devil facial tumor disease. Um, so we're going to recap that a little bit just for uh, just to keep everybody on the same page. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about her experiences, the experience she had in Africa. And then we're going to talk about uh, funnier. Uh, actually, that's the same thing. Her experience in Africa is her funny slash embarrassing <laughs> story. Uh, and then we're going to get her take on American zookeeping versus um, Australian zookeeping. And uh, then we'll uh, wrap up, guys. So thanks again for tuning in to, to part two of this episode. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started. So, Monica, if you could just kind of recap, uh, you know, what exactly devil facial tumor disease is, um, what populations it affects, you know, what's being done to you know, combat it and, uh, you know, just a general, I guess, kind of synopsis of what's going on in that kind of, in that realm. No worries. Well, um, devil facial tumor disease, uh, for anyone that doesn't know, is a contagious cancer that got into the population in the 90s, in 1996. Since then, it um, has spread through about 85 to 90% of the entire population of devils in the wild. Um, the disease is quite a complex one. The reason it affects devils so vastly across the whole population is that when a disease generally gets into a population it affects those with the lowered immune system first um and uh so generally it'll be you know the sick the old the really young that's the same in humans as well this particular cancer though the component on the cancer called the mhc component it's a protein that your immune system would normally recognize if it's a healthy immune system and so it'd start to kick in and work this particular cancer has been able to almost mutate, I guess, in a way, and that protein is invisible to the devil's immune system. So whether the devil is uh, healthy, prime of its life, um, perfect health animal, they will still get the cancer because their immune system doesn't recognise that they're sick. So that's why it's vastly affecting all of them. Uh, it spreads between individuals when they are fighting, typically over food, although devils are solitary they're what's probably considered a communal feeder because of the um, scavenging way that they feed. So they'll travel 10 kilometres in a night searching for food. More than one devil will, will find that same piece of food and then they end up fighting over it. Um, and when they bite each other, they're transferring the cancer. So um, can you, can you, is there a way to know if a certain devil has it before they start showing symptoms? Um, I don't believe so. You can test for it, but then... I believe that there has also been devils that tested negative for the cancer and then still develop tumours later on. So basically it's just quarantine periods. So when they come into captivity and they're wild devils, there's there's all sorts of different tiers of quarantine depending on what area they came from or what institution they came from. So even if they didn't come from the wild, if they're coming into mainland Australia from a Tasmanian institution, then they're considered a different tier level of quarantine and they still need to go through further quarantine um, in case there's been any contact because really um, you just don't know whether they're going to 
end up with the cancer. And at the moment, there's no cancer in any of the captive population on mainland Australia and in the captive population in Tasmania, but there's more chances of breaches in the populations in Tasmania because of the proximity to wild devils. Okay, and then where are we at on in terms of finding a cure? Uh, I know we talked about a little bit of that last time. Yeah, I think we touched on it. The At this stage, and look, the science of it is changing every day, and I guess um, I probably should stress that my expertise is breeding and husbandry, right. but um, but we do obviously know a bit about what's happening with the disease. Uh, they have developed a vaccine, but the vaccine um, and a number of devils have been released into the wild with the vaccine now. We don't know whether that's been successful yet because they're in the process of you know, letting them out there and then waiting that period of time and then recapturing and testing devils and um, seeing whether they're surviving. In captivity, when they were exposed to the cancer after being vaccinated, they didn't develop the cancer, which was great. However, they're exposed to the cancer in a lot higher um, proportions in the wild, so we don't know whether it's going to work. The way the vaccine works, though, is a little bit different to other vaccines. Because of the way that that protein is on the cancer, the vaccine basically... Uh, binds to the protein of the cancer that um, would normally be invisible to the devil's immune system and basically turns it back on. So it almost switches that protein back on so the devil's immune system can recognise it and start to fight it. So a vaccinated devil, if they're sick and unwell generally, then they're still going to get the disease. Sure. Um, whereas, So that's how it's a little bit different to, to other vaccines in different species. So has there been any, has there been any trials where... I mean, it's so risky, right? I was just wondering if there was any trials uh, of, of vaccinated... Vaccinated devils getting injected a vaccinated devil, cancer? Vaccinated devil and then put with a non-carrier of the disease. Um, has there been transfer after, after vaccination? Uh, I'm not quite sure. Okay. I don't know. What they did do is they initially, they thought devils on the west coast of Tasmania were genetically different and that okay. they might have had a level of immunity to the cancer. And they did inject some of those devils with the cancer um, and unfortunately they still developed the cancer so that was a long time ago i'm not entirely sure whether what they got to with the point of this vaccine and whether they've done um, captive trials with with exposing them to the disease like in what kind of proportions they've sure, done sure, that sure. it's sort of very much that side of it um, comes from tasmanian government and our programs are more about trying to keep devil's wild keep their genetics um as variable as we can and um yeah getting those healthy populations in captivity that when tassie say we need x numbers to release or part of different programs then that's where our role really right becomes involved yeah i was just kind of i don't know my mind's going in like a hundred different ways so it's like you know we have a limited number of these but we have to figure out if the vaccine works so yeah every time you try and expose it it doesn't work then you've now exposed another one yeah, to and the, look, the cancer. So. The good thing is the number of devils in captivity <clears throat> is now above our above that that okay. minimum threshold. So in fact, we actually have slowed down breeding because we have nowhere to put these guys. Oh wow! So initially, in the start of the program, we were trying to pump out as many devils as we can. Now, the captive institutions are almost at capacity, and it's a little bit more about making sure the behaviors of the devils that we have are more suitable to release rather than just trying to build up numbers. And I guess that's where our program is a little bit more involved um one of the bigger issues the vaccine side of it we don't have as much to do with but we have been started to get involved most of the releases that have happened unfortunately most of the devils have been hit by cars and died so we're actually working towards doing vehicle aversion training um, and seeing whether we can develop ways where these captive devils can 
almost be conditioned to hearing vehicle sounds and a mm. negative association with that. And, sure. But for a scavenger that hangs around roadsides for animals that have been hit by cars, it's really difficult. Um, and then also in these big enclosures, a lot of these devils in captivity are fed off vehicles or they hear vehicles arrive and almost they're associating vehicles with food rather than... Um, so that's a big challenge and that's something that I guess is more, yeah, where captive institutions can get involved. The vaccine side of it is a bit more you know, geneticists and researchers. Yeah, that's tough because they associate it with food both ways. Like if they're eating exactly. roadkill, they hear a car, they're going to go find roadkill. And yeah. if somebody drives off and drops off a carcass, they're still hearing the car. Yeah. Huh. So there's some really unique stuff happening in Tassie, though, which will hopefully be more and more. One of those, I think it actually came from the States, that there was a lot of work done here with um, using types of fence lines that deter animals that when a car comes along the vibrations turn on this high frequency along different areas and I think it was used to get deer off roads um, in areas that were high accident areas here so they're using that in Tassie now on areas where there's high numbers of devils get hit to hopefully allow how, how do you find a sound what, what kind of sounds do Tassie's not like <laughs> well it was really interesting because we were expecting like you know, loud foghorn noises and things like that to be what would be the aversive sure. stimuli for them. And it was quite ironic. We would find um, when we did those sounds, they would kind of approach the sound and be like, hey, what's that? What's going on? <laughs> the stuff that scared them the most was rustling cellophane. Like, I don't know. Do you yeah, guys yeah, have yeah, 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 yeah. I know what sound you mean. Just like, like yeah, it's like, just cr crinkling yeah, yeah. this plastic kind of thing. That huh. was what scared devils. Um, citronella spray, hose spray, foghorn no noises, all of them, they were just... Well, they're devils, so they like all the bad things, right? And then, like, the nice things, like the sound of unwrapping a president, present like cellophane, they, they don't, I don't want anything well, to do with that. <laughs> we think more, like, the, the loud sounds of horns and things, they probably occasionally hear them from roads and things, even in the captive institutions, sure. so, um, and... For devils, it was really the completely novel sound, um, which is what we think why the cellophane works so well, is that it's just something incredibly novel. And um, so it's probably not so much the cellophane itself, but making sure you find something that is so novel to them. But once you use it a few times and devils know that it's not going to hurt them, then right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just they get desensitized. You have to exactly, constantly yeah. be tra changing, changing that up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're not quite sure how that will then be paired with a vehicle sound or whether it's the vehicle sound it needs to be paired with or a level of vibration on the road it needs to be paired with or um, light shine or something like that that all just needs to be established because we don't you don't really know what is going to be the best um, thing because if it's the sound of a car it's probably too late by the time they hear a car yeah you need something big like a car that you can obviously transport things in but that sounds not like a car like uh i mean it'd get really expensive but like if you just had like an army of like toyota priuses that only <laughs> drove under 35 miles an hour so yeah. it doesn't activate the combustion part of the engine or something crazy like that uh, that's, yeah that's how that's that's a big that's there's so many layers to this problem like I, like i just keep peeling back but anyway um okay so uh briefly before we ended the last episode we touched on a second cancer yeah. Um, so let's just cover that real quick and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get out of some of the doom and gloom and we'll get into some fun stuff. So I don't know a lot about the second cancer. All that I do know is um, it was found about a year ago and then scientists were doing a lot more research to determine whether it was a 
a mutation of the first cancer or actually a second cancer. Unfortunately, they've determined that it is a completely different cancer. So mm. they're calling it now DFTD1 and DFTD2. And the reason why they don't think that it's a, a mutation from the first cancer is it's different at the sex chromosome level. So there's no way it can be a mutation um, from the first cancer. And, um, yeah, being so different at the genetic level means that it... The other scary thing is it's appeared in an individual, which, you know, a lot of the concern... A lot of the thought process behind the cancer, the most likely scenario is that the cancer appeared uh, as a genetic mutation in one individual, but there's still some theories about chemicals and different things like that. The fact that a second cancer has just appeared in the wild population is pretty scary because that means it could just appear in the captive population or given that it's completely separate from the first cancer. Um, clinically, it displays exactly the same, and that's why I guess it took a long time to actually determine a second cancer. I'm not sure if they've been able to work out how long that cancer has been around, but they do know that it is completely different, But and that the incubation times um, before it starts to present as tumours is a little bit different to the first cancer, but the tumours look exactly the same. So a devil with DFTD, you can't necessarily tell straight out which DFTD they carry. Right, and now say we do find a cure for the first one. Now we got the second they think, one. Yeah, but I think won't. because the cancers are so similar, okay. they should be able to use the same concepts to develop. Like if the vaccine works, they works, should be you, able to just sure. develop a second vaccine. That makes sense. But the thing with the vaccines is going to be difficult because obviously a vaccine, it's only the animals that are vaccinated that yeah. that's going to help. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the whole... The whole program with devils and the whole situation with the cancer is really complex because there's changes that are happening across the whole population. There's some areas that suggest that devils are developing their own level of immunity now. There's other areas where devils are breeding younger than they ever have before, um, you know, younger than what we understood they ever could. Um, you know, a lot, of de- a lot of the information was that devils couldn't even produce sperm at two years old and now we're getting one-year-olds definitely breeding. Um, mm. So interestingly, the population seems to be, I guess, adapting or developing on its own. It's just a matter of will they evolve in In time time. Um, and what's the best way for us to contribute to that? Is it vaccines? Is it, you know, disease-free populations in areas to allow for that natural progression against the cancer? There's lots and lots of different layers of the program. Yeah, so that's a it's interesting. It's, it's a so, very challenging. Just, just so challenging, program. such a big big problem. But uh, sounds like somebody smart is working on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you guys have a handle on the breeding and husbandry part of it. So I don't know. I think it's not as bad, maybe. As we, it's certainly not it's, as bad as, as it was what, like a few years ago. Even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even yeah. when I started on the program, it was a big. You know, we need to breed these guys. They're going to go extinct. And now it's a lot more. That's not going to happen. It's just a matter of the best way to make. Or to get them on the right path, and I just think it's a it's another example of humans being able to solve problems. I mean, not that this is solved yet, but you know, heading towards that direction. But another case of humans being able to figure out how to fix a problem, and then getting everybody to buy in, and then you know, doing it. Like the example I always throw out, like keeper talks, is uh, you know, the, the hole in the ozone layer. Which I know I'm dating myself a little bit. I don't know if it was a big thing when you guys when you were. Uh, you know, coming coming up, but when I was in like middle, like elementary, middle school, that was the big thing. Can't use aerosols. Can't use. We're killing the ozone layer, and then yeah, we yeah. we figured out how to make aerosols without the CFCs and the bad stuff. And now the hole is yeah. closing and all that, and you don't really hear about that problem anymore. 
So, you know, I have, I have faith that we can figure stuff oh, out. Oh, definitely. Like and science out. is an interesting thing. I haven't fully read the article yet, but I was just sent an article that says devil milk may hold some kind of ability to cure cancers or different diseases in people. It's insane, so I haven't man. read it yet, yeah, but yeah. there's something all about devil actual milk. Sure. I don't know how or why or what. I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of amazing stuff like that in the in the animal world. There's there's a million, like we, we've used like spider web, create like crazily strong thread and stuff like that. So, you know, looking more to the natural world uh, to solve our problems, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Definitely. Okay, well, let's something a little more fun. I know this isn't exactly a embarrassing or fun story, but I think the guests will enjoy it. Tell us about the time when you were uh, messing around with some buffalo in uh in africa and kind of the kind of life uh close to life and death experience that you had there yeah (laughs) well there was a few with buffalo and lions (laughs) um but i think we touched on the last time that you know i spent six months in south africa at a park called marikali contractual national park and part of um one of the things that we did there was areas of south africa are called tyleria free zones and that means that buffalo that are in that area are not allowed to be carriers of Tyleria um, because of cattle areas in the industry. You better so, you better pause there and say what Tyleria is. Um, Tyleria is a tick-borne disease. <laughs> it doesn't affect buffalo, but buffalo end up being a carrier of this disease. And when it gets into cattle, um, it then I'm not quite sure what it does to the cattle, but basically it affects the production yeah. for a human use or whatever so um in south africa if uh there's certain areas that are deemed tyleria free and if you have buffalo even the national parks have to test the buffalo and if they um end up with coming becoming positive to tyleria they have to move those buffalo or for euthanize them right so the park that i was in was about two hundred thousand hectares i know you guys don't work in hectares i don't know what that is it's big um and the uh they tested positive for Tyleria. Luckily, it was more of a conservation park, and so they decided that they wanted to move all those buffalo on rather than euthanize, which is brilliant. But 200,000 hectares where it's not open to the public means that buffalo are as wild as they can be, and even when they're not wild, buffalo are just like cows on steroids. So they're yeah. not animals you really want to mess with all yeah. the time. There was about 200 head of buffalo across the park, and so what they did to move them was they would use helicopters to round up different herds and they had these huge uh, funnel systems with shade cloth that at the mouth of the funnel was about half a kilometre to a kilometre and it um, slowly met into a truck that you would herd them all and then they would end up on the truck. And at various stages up the funnel, you would have runners where um, as the buffalo passed certain areas of the funnel, um, the helicopters would send off sirens and that signal to you to run and you would just run like buggery with a sheet of shade cloth um, and close the funnel and the buffalo would hopefully keep moving forward. And the station that I was on, and mind you, we were told if we wanted to be involved, you just signed a bit of paper that pretty much said if you died, you died <laughs> and you couldn't sue. Yeah. Um, and that, um, you know, we were also told this is a really important um, project and if you... Basically, under no circumstances would you leave your post. If you left your post, um, then it was like you were going to be responsible for the whole thing not being successful. Right. So anyway, I was on one of the posts that was very close to the truck, which meant that I was, instead of being a runner, I was up a ladder. And once the buffalo moved past my section, I would hear a siren and I would just have to pull on a pulley system and close my section of 
fence line. Sounds pretty simple. I just had to stay below the height of the fence line so that the buffalo couldn't visibly see me. Anyway, and I, and watch for the, like, I could see the post behind me further down that when they moved theirs, I knew that I was going to be coming up next. Halfway through, I, um, you know, hear buffalo moving and the helicopters are all around and um, I just see the girls that are at the post before me running, like, leave their post, run and start climbing up a tree and I'm just like, <laughs> they didn't close their fence yet. I don't know what I'm doing. What am I going to do? And so I just was, like, starting to, you know, scout out where I would run to. And you were told if you ended up in a situation with a buffalo, climb up the closest tree or run like hell to underneath the truck. Um, but under no circumstance would you just, you know. Walk around. Walk around yeah. <laughs> or, or basically be visible. So there was a helicopter that was hovering just right above my head pretty much and there was no sirens and I didn't really know what was going on. So it was really windy and I'm trying to hold on to like just the top of this ladder and then and not be visible to the buffalo, but I could smell them and I could hear them. And then all of a sudden, either side of the ladder that I was on, and you can just imagine, it's just shade cloth. So it's like really not a very thick material in between it's me not gonna and stop a buffalo. buffalo. And then I just see these two heads pushing either side of the ladder of the um, shade cloth, just pushing through. And I'm just like, that's it. I'm going to die. I'm just like, <laughs> see you later. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Do I hold on to the top of the ladder when they come through? Do I jump off now and run to the truck? no, you can't leave your post. I'm not going to jump off. So it was like a very scary situation. The helicopters are getting really low to my head to try and make the buffalo move away from the fence. And there's another helicopter nearby because apparently one buffalo had like not gone through the whole funnel system and was just hanging in the outside. So it wasn't really a danger. The helicopter was just there to kind of like stop the buffalo coming towards us. Um, and it was a pretty scary situation. Very anticlimactic. They backed off and they ended up like going onto the truck and I could like go and change my underpants it was fine <laughs> but the other time as part of that was that after we funneled as many of the buffalo onto the trucks as we could there were some that were just stragglers around the forest those we would dart from a helicopter then once we darted them you would run in on foot with huge like um stretches and then carry the buffalo out so you would need like 10 of you to carry a buffalo and you'd get them onto one of the utes so we went out to one site they just darted the buffalo and we were on foot and like waiting for that call to just like run in to get the buffalo onto these um, mats. And then all of a sudden the helicopter is just hovering over us. We had nothing. We were miles away from the vehicle. And our manager from the helicopter is just like mouthing to us to run and doing figurines on his head of a buffalo. So we just had to look for the closest trees, r climb up trees. And literally as soon as we got up the tree, there was two buffalo that charged through. They were hammering the trees that we were up. And basically were just, um, were the extras. So they had darted the buffalo that they wanted to catch. But these were other ones. And so I do have a scar right down my left um, wrist. And I say that's from buffalo capture, which it is. But it maybe <laughs> wasn't a buffalo. It was just a huge thorn from a tree I had to climb. Oh, man. That, so, that is an experience. I wonder if that helicopter could have got low enough. Couldn't you just grab onto the rail and like fly off like, <laughs> like Mission Impossible style or something like Tom Cruise riding off on a... Possibly. Oh man! How I tall was the ladder? It was like like a, like I guess it was not like, a tall ladder. Not a tall ladder. Okay. Yeah, because you was, were underneath the shade cloth. I was right? underneath it's the like shade a step cloth. stool almost. Oh no, Little, probably like three or four feet. Yeah, yeah, okay. about four feet. I reckon. Okay. Yeah, it was just it was a very interesting experience. <clears throat> there were so many stories like that that are uh, just hilarious. I don't um, know what I would do. Like, could you 
this, is, this is half joking truck. this is half joking but like jump on the back of one and <laughs> ride one off maybe it'll Probably be a buddy yeah. one of the things that we had to do which was like so when we had all the buffalo in a boma you then had to like take blood and do all this other stuff for um tb and all these different things so they would dart them all in a boma and then you would come in and have to um like blindfold them hold their heads up so that they weren't um like wouldn't yeah, yeah. Like choke or anything like that. Right. But then you're all in a boomer and everyone's sitting on a buffalo holding their heads up. And there's a the wake-up drug injected into all of their ears. Just all yeah. the syringes were just hanging out ready to go. And then it was like one, two, three, everyone get inject out. at once. And then grab the blindfolds and get out. <laughs> and you had to kind of like hold on and wait till just that last second. And then it's a like run of, you know, 20 people trying to get out of this boomer wall. Like... <laughs> 20 buffalo <laughs> are waking up really pissed off because oh, you've just, man. yeah. So it was an interesting experience. And working in Africa has kind of shown me a real appreciation for our OHS and the types of stuff that we do in zoos here. <laughs> Your HS? OHS, uh, Occupational Health and Safety. Gotcha. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like that. We all laugh about it here, but, um, you know. I think we can appreciate it when you get into situations like that. Oh, no, totally. Like when we have, uh, like ladder safety classes or, laugh, or whatever we yeah. laugh like oh who's gonna fall off a ladder well if you have two buffalo pressing on it then uh yeah <laughs> you probably well, want to know how to use a ladder safely huh? these boomers that i had to uh, feed buffalo from was i had to there was no doors so i had to climb up like this little step thing and then the boomers just were like um like one plank and you didn't have anything to hold on to it was just a plank and you would be just balancing with a bale of hay. And as soon as the buffalo saw you, they would be charging their heads at the like. So the whole thing would be shaking. Right. And it's like, if you fall in there, you're dead. Yeah. So it was just feet out as quick as you could and then climb back down the ladder. It's like literally like life and death if I, All the if time. I take one step, one direction, I'm dead. You know, uh, was, that's crazy. That is a good story. Um, let's move on, though. Uh, let's go back and uh, chat about differences between uh, American zoos and and. Uh, Australian zoos. Yeah. Well, um, I think that the biggest difference that I've seen, um, I mean, coming from Zoos Victoria and being at San Diego Zoo, we're probably pretty even in the standards of level of care and husbandry skills and that sort of thing. So I'm not quite sure how maybe smaller zoos work here and vice versa in Australia. But the, there are a lot of similarities in that aspect. I think the biggest thing that I've found different is, um, I guess, what perceptions of visitors and then what we are mm. presenting sure. to the public um and i think that for me that's something that i i think as progressive zoos would be really good to keep on changing but things like um what we deliver enrichment wise feeding the biggest thing that's a big difference with america to australia i think is is that perception of not wanting to offend anyone and um what that means in how we we feed our animals or even how we just display them in general or what kind of signage we have or or all those sorts of things people don't want to see um whole animals being fed out or faces or anything like that and that's a big difference we definitely um will feed out all of those sorts of things at our institutions and um i think that's critical and really important with um having animals in captivity so not to say that that anything's a bad thing, but I guess that's a big difference that I've probably noticed. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think we are getting better in that regard. The biggest thing 
I mean, we weren't allowed to do carcass skin feeds at all for a mm. while. And now we've recently started doing it. Now our rule is, like you said, no face. People don't want to see, mm. you know, but my, my uh, I guess my biggest beef with it is that I feel like it's such a small segment of the population that has issues with that kind of things. Like when I work polar bears all the time, you know, I get questions from guests every day. Hey, how come there's no seals in there for them to eat and that kind mm. of stuff? Like those, like a lot of guests want to see that stuff. And those, uh, I think that those kind of people outnumber you know, the small minority that's out there, you know, and is it a small minority? It? Like, do we actually even know anymore? Because it's probably a perception these days. Um, like people often think, you know, the children don't want to see it. In my experience, the kids are the ones that all want to see it. And sometimes it's the parents that are the ones that feel like their, their children shouldn't have seen that or that someone else might get offended. But um, it would be interesting to actually uh, almost you know, survey visitors in the States and see what they actually do want to see or not. Because we, we've done that in Australia, not so much with, um, like, seeing carcasses and things. But I also think it's all about the interpretation that you deliver with oh, that. Oh, for sure. We feed out um, whole wallabies and possums to our devils, which can be really confronting to visitors. And it has been in, like, in my experience, feeding out uh, a whole wallaby. Like, when they've just walked through a wallaby paddock, visitors will often be a little bit shocked with that. The minute you completely explain that and that it's their biggest part of their diet in the wild, that the population's an insurance population, I've never had somebody that wasn't okay with that. And explaining and kind of saying to people, this is what you're going to see next. Um, I think it's all about education. And if we go past that, not wanting to do something in case it offends and dealing with that before we get there, then I think we can be really progressive in how we have animals. And the reason I think that's so important, and I guess that's probably a big passion of mine with carnivores, is... Um, We've done studies on our devils um, having a large population. We had the opportunity to study what they would be like getting fed every day opposed to getting fed a gorge-starve regime. And we found significant results that, that supported getting fed on a gorge-starve regime. And by that, I mean we feed our devils three or four days' worth of food at once, starve days, single feeds, double feeds, a lot more than the typical feed them six days a week and give them one token starve day, like an actual proper gorge-starve regime. And the devils on those diets um, had more naturalistic behaviour patterns, had less stereotypic behaviours, um, and uh, were overall healthier, had less fluctuations with weights when you would think maybe a gorge starve regime might have more. And so there's actually science now that supports these kind of feedings. And so I think it's something that instead of looking at always the challenges of, oh, but if I give them a carcass, how are they going to shift the next day? Or if I do this, they're going to be asleep when visitors want to see them shifting away from that and working out how we can capitalize on that and kind of go, well, hang on, maybe we can turn this carcass feed into a great visitor thing and capitalize on having sleeping areas visible or whatever. I think there's certainly ways where we can do both and make sure the animals have the um, the best welfare that they possibly can I've, and still meet our visitor needs and our husbandry requirements and all of that. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it also ties back into... Uh, and again, I can't speak to other countries where Australia and stuff like that, but I can I can speak that most Americans don't, maybe most is too much of a blanket statement, but many Americans do not know where their food comes from or don't want to know where their food mm. comes from. I can tell a story about when I went to Peru and uh, we uh, camped in a small town and the locals one morning were uh, butchering a cow for the day. You know, it's what they do. They butcher a cow, they have meal, they feed the village, whatever, you know. And one of the Americans in my tour group was like, oh, you know, I just don't want to see that. You know, I don't want to know where that food comes from. I don't want to know people are actually butchering cows. I don't want to see that right now. And I was mm. just, you know, the, 
maybe it's good for you. Maybe you should go and watch so you can see when you eat that hamburger where that where is that 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 meat coming from. So yeah. uh, no, I totally agree, and I think that uh, zoos in general need to get to a place where we can um, do things like carcass feeds because it benefits the animals and educates the public about what these animals are actually doing instead of just eating a meatball from my hand mm. and standing up to to show how the bear can stand up or whatever, you know? So yeah. uh, I completely agree with you there. Okay. Now let's get to <laughs> the thing that you may want to talk about uh, uh, at the end of the show here, where uh, you can really talk about, you know, whatever you want here, uh, kind of a free form here. <laughs> That's dangerous. I know we might be here for another half hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do know that I can talk forever, but um, I guess one of the things that I would recommend to anyone wanting to get into the zookeeping world or even people that are in it already and have been in it for a long time. Um, I guess, you know, zoos, no matter where you are, I think you can start to get into a, into a situation where, you know, maybe you can start to become negative about your own institution or there's things that start to challenge you that you're not quite happy with. And I think that the biggest thing is to never think that you know anything and always be open to change and progression. Um, and that, always check out other places um you know i i know that zoos victoria i want to be my forever organization but leaving there for a while and coming here and seeing you know some of the best zoos in the world has kind of shown me that it's not always the grass isn't always greener on the other side for a lot of different reasons um and that it can be really valuable i think to spread your wings and work in multiple different places not just for your own career development but just for also like spurring on getting passion back from different areas and things like that. Like, you know, I'd worked in the one place for a really long time and started to get to the point of, do I want to stay on the devil program? Do I want to stay working with these animals I've been with for six years, come across here, work with different animals for a while. And now I'm really pumped to get back as much as I want to stay here. I'd love to stay here for longer. I'm already thinking about the next research that I'm going to do or how I could do things different, how I could do things better. And so I think that I would just say for new keepers, keep an open mind, get experience in as many different places as you can. Do stuff that's different. Look up your local wildlife places. People don't even realize what you can get involved in. Um, and there's wildlife organizations, there's rehab places, there's research programs, getting in touch with places to do to, to help out with research. Part of the experience, like I'm really proud of how much experience I've got, but it's because I went out to try and find it, you know, volunteering with penguin study groups in Australia. Once a month I would go out to Phillip Island and pull penguins out of burrows and microchip them and check them for different things. I don't have any experience with penguins, but now I do. And just it gives you a whole range of different skill sets and people I think sometimes get, I've got my degree, I've got my foot in the door, I deserve the next job. But keep on learning, keep on getting experience, volunteer, go overseas, get a wider view of everything that you're doing. And then once you've been in it, leave for a bit. Once you've been in the one place for 10 years, go and see something else and like then spur that passion you used to have if you're starting to get a bit stale where you are. Yeah. And I, I echo those sentiments for sure. And even while I haven't worked in, you know, uh, overseas in any other country or anything, but I think part of the reasons why I've been successful is that I've, this is my, the fourth zoo I've been to. So even though it's just this country, every zoo has its own culture, its own way of doing things. And if you can learn multiple ways of doing bunch of different things then you're going to be a much better keeper you're going to be a more well-rounded you're going to be able to bring more to your current organization so i completely 100 percent agree with that so yeah um well thanks monica that is uh it was really great talking to you today and it's been great having you here the last three months we're all going to be extremely sad when you go 
Are uh, you, we're gonna have are to, you really? So sad. <laughs> Maybe Pete, not so much. <laughs> uh, but no, we, we've definitely got to figure out a way to get over and uh, to your side of things and, and visit definitely. over there. Definitely. So, Come and squeeze um, a dough. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, <laughs> we'll do that. But anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. And, uh, you know, we've had a, had a really smart person on today that uh, talked a little bit more uh, high level stuff, like in terms of the science behind uh, t- tumor facial disease, facial tumor disease. See, I can't even get it straight. Uh, but anyway, that's a wrap for us, guys. Uh, yeah, it's, it's beer time. It's beer clock. Um, so we're going to get out of here. But again, thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back uh, shortly with another episode of the Zookeeper Stories podcast. Thanks, Thanks guys. for having me. Thanks, Monica. Thank you for listening to the Zookeeper Stories podcast. I hope you learned something about zookeeping and had a few laughs along the way. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and Stitcher. It really helps me to grow the show and continue to improve. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can send an email to zookeeperstories at gmail.com or tweet me at zookeeperstory. 